welcome back to Round 12, the podcast that will always be dedicated to growth, development, and motivational mastery. I am your host, Sensei Roger B. Hamilton. Thank you for joining us again today for episode number 17 of the Round 12 podcast series. Let's go get it. Making a difference. First of all, episode number 17. Now, it's just crazy. We started this podcast playing around, trying to expand our horizons and look at some different thoughts and perspectives and also counterbalance some of that negative that's flying all around the world. And here we are a little 17 episodes later, still trying to make a point about the good that's still left in the world. And so, unfortunately, I happen to be one of those people who has to stress this thing to go ahead and round out my soul. So I'm serious about it. So the fact is, I I plan to continue moving this needle forward so that we have something else that maybe we can consider for our perspectives and our growth and our development. So if you're here with me and um, you've taken this ride with us this far, or if you're just joining and you want to ride from here, then let's go get it and see what we can come up with, uh, at least to give us a, a positive chance to make this thing happen the right way. You know, when you stop and think sometimes, you realize that life is made up of so many various and different circumstances, and they define our lives. You know, if one thing happens and your life finds direction, and then when uh, an absolutely different thing happens, you find a completely alternate direction instead. You have to play the cards you're dealt and do the best you can and be the best you can be with what you have. And that in itself can be all right. We get born into this world and we have nothing to do with it until we start making decisions for ourselves and find out it's not that easy to do. Falling debris and bumps in the road can really mess up your direction. But after further review of my own circumstances and after many opportunities to look clearly at my life, my choices and my decisions, I am certain now without one single doubt that I am a fortunate, blessed individual. And all the things that looked like they were so bad were actually tools for my success and meant to be in their own crazy way. As many of us know, when you lose a family member as a child, sometimes other family members step in to help. My uncle was that person, Henry Bush, a.k.a. Bebop, was the one who stepped in for me. In Uncle Bebop's capacity as a delivery truck driver, he would quite often take me out on the road with him. His product was soda for a major beverage distributor. The name of the company, based in New Brunswick, New Jersey, was Will Hall Cot Distributors Incorporated. One of the products on the list, in addition to my favorite beverage at 10 years old orange soda, was the classic beverage Yoo-Hoo chocolate drink. Back then, I remember the bottles were delivered in wooden crates, which were quite heavy. After a certain point, every summer and any off day from school, I went to work on the truck. It was very exciting to travel to so many new places every day. I marveled at the way my uncle navigated his large truck from city to city and delivered his product with ease. Admittedly, though, it was still stifling to try and be a child under my uncle's dominant instruction. At about 12 years old, instead of just riding along, he began gradually letting me help. In the beginning, when I first started riding with him, 
as the rhythm of the engine hummed and the truck bounced along the highway. Without fail, I would always fall asleep. Before the workday was finished, you could always find me slumped over in the seat with my mouth wide open like a hungry baby bird waiting for dinner. After each of my early ride-along snoozes, I would awaken at the end of the journey with Uncle Bebop staring at me. While chomping on his ever-present cigar, which he called his cigar, he would remind me that I wasn't a man because only kids fall asleep when it's time to work. Soon after, I started forcing myself to stay awake no matter what. I was internally impressed by the way my uncle ran his business as a route driver. He was expert at what he did. I was overjoyed when he finally let me help out. But I had no idea when I started doing those little tasks for him that they would become judgments of my value as a man and as a human being. My uncle was continually testing me. My worth was seemingly dependent on how well I worked. So instead of a fun day with my uncle, our excursions turned quickly to laborious driver training. And they stayed that way all the way through high school and beyond. My uncle would exhibit incredible feats of strength while making his deliveries, which always impressed his customers. He would maneuver his loaded hand truck down into dark basements where you couldn't see your hand in front of your face, rocking his load back and forth down rickety steps worn from years of use. He would place his load perfectly in the place his customers asked him to. Then he would do it over and over again, showing no signs of fatigue or distress. I would go down in some of those spaces in the early days, and for the life of me, I couldn't figure out how he did it. He would climb high rows of stairs to the second floor, pulling a dolly filled to the brim with heavy wooden crates, smiling all the way. As soon as I could, I started trying to emulate his abilities, but he would make it crystal clear that I had to work much harder than I was working if I was to be taken seriously by him. There were times when it was the middle of the summer, and I was just trying to have fun, and I dragged my feet a bit. In response, if I fumbled one of the full cases of soda he threw to me from the front of the truck, or if I didn't have my assignment finished in sync with his, he would throw a fit. It was apparent that he felt my very life depended on my ability to work and to work effectively. Sometimes, when we would climb into the truck after a completed stop, he would chastise me, though to his credit, never in front of the customers. But when it was between him and me, there, there in the cab of that truck, he would drop a verbal bomb on me. He would start banging his fist crazily on the steering wheel and dashboard of his truck, and he would yell, if you want to work, work. If you want to bullshit, bullshit. But if you want to bullshit, stay home. And he obviously meant it. If you want to be a man, be a man. If not, I'll leave you home with the girls. Sadly, he would put an extremely distasteful emphasis on the girls. He wanted desperately for me to understand that in his estimation, work was of ultimate importance for achieving manhood. He made no bones about the fact that if I couldn't work physically, then I would never be a man. So I learned to work. My uncle was a purebred, blue-collar, live-and-die-by-his-trade working man. Although I'm now certain that my uncle loved me, all of his communication then was in code. Consequently, I became very efficient at reading his moves. When he didn't go off, I knew I had done something right. In spite of my successful efforts to understand and adjust to my family's dictates, 
There was still that growing teenage tension inside of me. I was smiling less and less, and I seemed to speak less as well. I think when you're young and confused and frustrated, you don't know what to say, and often you don't know what to do either. So you wait it out. You walk it out. And if you work hard enough and you get lucky enough, you start to find gold. You discover the best in yourself, and you begin to like that discovery. And if you mess around long enough with the crazy idea of self-improvement and clarity, you pick up a few things. Here's one I've learned along the way. Be grateful for those people who tried to help you, even though they may not have been perfect. They gave what they knew how to give. I've learned to celebrate those people and those events, which have given me tremendous power and purpose and balance. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen and family. My name is Roger Bush Hamilton. That's what's on my paperwork. That's what's on everything I do. Don't let that Hamilton fool you. All right. I love the idea that this says a celebration of life. Amen. And that's what I would like to emphasize here today. Look at that picture. That's a pretty man right there. Give him some love. Here you go. Now, you guys will forgive me. I'm going to take some liberties and talk about him from the perspective of which I know him. And have known him. And have loved him. And the first thing is, is when you call his name, you got to call it right. You got to talk. We're talking about Bieber. Huh? Help me out a little bit. We're talking about Bieber. You know, the theme I would like to offer, and I want to condense this because I know we have lots to do and I don't want to take too much of everybody's time, so please bear with me. I want to talk about the concept of making a difference. The concept of making a difference that all of us have. We all have this opportunity in life to make a difference, to make a difference in one person's life and a lot of people's lives. And on behalf of my people, my wife now, 20 years, Valrena, my two sons, Omar and Ali, 19 and 15 years old, outstanding young man, I've tried to make a difference in their lives. And it is working. And my apologies for them not being here today. It couldn't be worked out, but they are here in spirit and they know Viva. They know Viva. And so, I wanted to just take a moment and let you know why this man is important to me. You know, it's interesting, making a difference. Making a difference. You know, when I was nine years old, I had the misfortune on February 12th, 1966, to watch my mother come down the stairs sobbing and crying and screaming uncontrollably with her baby in her arms of six months who had died. The second child of a twin who slept right next to her in the bed comfortably, safe and sound. I watched this occur, and I realized that something was changing in our lives. A dark veil started to cover our world. We got through that, and one of the people very instrumental in helping her was her best friend, Sandra. 
attached at the hip, these two women. When you saw one, you saw the other. And I know for a fact that without that woman, my mother wouldn't have made it through. One month later to the day, on March 12, 1966, my father and four other people were out fishing, doing what they loved, and they all drowned, tragically. They had to drag the river for a month to look for the, all the bodies. Changed everybody's life forever. Changed mine forever. But let me tell you something. It was later that Mr. Henry B. Bob Bush reached in and decided in his own inimitable way, the way he knew how, he was going to help me. I don't know if my mother told him to do it. I don't know if he decided to do it. I don't know how it all occurred. But somehow he reached in and decided that he was going to make a difference. And he grabbed me up and took me with him on a truck to go to work. I'm a child. I'm thinking, that's no problem. I get to go out and hang out, eat some lollipops and drink some soda and have some fun out on the truck. No. Ten years old, 12 years old, 14 years old, I was out there working. I was out there learning what he knew, and he knew a lot. This man was a consummate professional. I don't care what anybody says about what the task of a, of a labor job is. This man made it into an art form. I can tell you this from experience. I've seen him more than just about anybody do what he did. He was an absolute artist in what he did. And he taught me something so very, very valuable. The only time I'll break up today is when I think about what he gave me. He gave me work ethic. He gave me responsibility in a sense. When you do a job, do it right, boy. When you do a job, do it right. You're going to work, work. If you're going to BS, stay home. We got work to do out here. And I will never, ever, as long as I live, forget those words. And that inspiration he imparted in me without me even knowing what he was doing. He was setting me up for life. He was setting me up so that I could teach my sons how to live and how to be and how to be excellent. Did Bebop make all the right decisions and say all the right things all the time? Maybe not. Did he make errors and mistakes? Maybe. But let me tell you something. I knew this man's intention. I knew this man's heart, and he had a big one. He reached out for people in all kinds of ways. If your car break down, call people. He'll come fix it on the spot for you. If you can't fix it on the spot, he'll get it somewhere where he can fix it. If you want to move, call Bebop. He'll go pick up the truck. He'll get it from the man. And back then, the man didn't trust just everybody with their truck. He would help you without, without issue. You got a possum down in the basement screaming, scaring everybody to death? Sit Bebop down there with a pitchfork. And I bet you that possum won't come up. Just let him stay down there until he stops screaming, then we'll throw him away. When you need some help, call Bebop. And he can. He didn't always come saying what you wanted him to say. He was sometimes absent of tact and diplomacy. Webster defines the word tact as the ability to appreciate the delicacy of a given situation and to do or say the most fitting thing. He didn't always say and do the most fitting thing. 
but he did something. He tried to make a difference at all times, and in the end, it always came out okay. Because you knew it was all right, we both care. And his, his sister, his only remaining sister, they have a history that is fractured and challenged, that grew into a rose that is beautiful and blessed. And she can put him to rest now knowing that they loved each other. To his dying day, they loved each other with all their heart and they expressed it. And because of that, I am even more at peace. I'm even more at peace to see my mother sitting here with what was her very, very best friend on earth together to say goodbye to Mr. Henry Bebop Bush. So I would say to you guys today, you can make a difference. If it's one person, if it's a thousand people, if it's a child, if it's an adult, if it's a sick, if it's a healthy, you can make a difference. Don't pass up on the opportunities. It's people like me who are benefits or beneficiaries of someone like Bebop reaching in to help me. And when I lost my father, I learned later in life, I learned later in life, this is the first time I said in a public setting, that that man that I love so much who died, he wasn't my biological father. So I lost twice. I never seen my father's face, the, the, the biological one, but the one who passed was a special man and I loved him. And Bebop came along and decided that, boy, you ain't alone. I got you. Now grab that piece of soda and shut up. And as the saying goes, he laughed and joked, but he don't play. So I would say to you in closing, and much love and respect to you all, I'm so glad to be home. I live in California now, but let me tell you something. There's never been a grander day, even though I'm saying goodbye to my uncle, than right now. I'm looking at my cousin, Sharon. I'm looking at my cousin, Arlene. Lived in the same house, ate the same food, did some of the same things together. I'm looking at my cousin, Henry Bush Jr., Hanky, we call him. And all their siblings, or all their children, and all their offspring, and all the things that they've done. And I want to say to you, I honor you today. I respect and appreciate you today for putting this together for my Uncle Bebop, your father. And we will all be better for this. And Sandra, I love you. And I thank you for everything that's taking place today. With unrelenting crescendo, the symphony of a life replete with its melodic progressions hastens to its finale. And the friendship and family that is ours to share with its Largos and Allegros moves everlasting onward in sweet memories. Thank you all very much. What do you 
say about joy and sorrow in his internationally acclaimed book, The Prophet. Your joy is your sorrow unmasked, and the self-same well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Is not the very cup that holds your wine the very cup that was burned in the potter's oven? And is not the lute that soothes your spirit, the very wood that was hollowed with knives? When you are joyous, look deep into your heart, and you shall find it is only that which has given you sorrow that is giving you joy. When you are sorrowful, look again in your heart, and you shall see that in truth you are weeping, for that which has been your delight. Some of you say joy is greater than sorrow, and others say no, sorrow is greater. But I say unto you, they are inseparable. Together they come, and when one sits alone with you at your board, remember that the other is asleep in your bed. Verily, you are suspended like scales between your sorrow and your joy. Only when you are empty are you standing still and balanced. When the treasure keeper lifts you to weigh his gold and silver, needs must your joy or your sorrow rise or fall. In Khalil Gibran's view and in mine, joy and sorrow are two sides of the same coin. Making the world better. Go the extra mile, it's never crowded. All of us human beings have much more in common than we do apart. But it seems so hard to remember this when we interact many times. We certainly want what we want and need what we need as individuals, but somehow that tension between us seems to rise so thickly, quickly, so often. Finding common ground and sharing parts of ourselves and our circumstances positively with others is often very healthy, very invigorating, and feels good. I know I can fight. I know I can defend myself. But can I find peace and do what little things I can do to make others feel good as well? My son Omar looked so surprised that afternoon. He was five years old and we had just left his school. When school ended that day, 
we had spoken to his very dynamic and invested kindergarten teacher. She was kind to us and offered to share some of her expectations and observations so that my talented young son could make his way successfully through her curriculum. It was a reciprocal, peaceful, two-way exchange in the main office of the suburban school on the hill in Berkeley, California. My son sat, sat patiently and quietly as his strong and athletically built teacher discussed him aloud. Not a long conversation, just enough for us both to leave each other feeling that we were committed to the same quest, the same goals, and with good nature on top of it. At the end of our conversation, with my left hand, I reached inside the right jacket pocket of my suit and offered her my handsome specialty pen. This was a gesture of what I considered similar kindness to what she had shown me. She smiled a gleaming smile as if both sides of her mouth were hanging from her earlobes and refused the gift. I insisted and gently moved the pen directly toward her. Her eyes shifted from looking at me to looking at the pen to dancing around the room. Finally, after I made it clear to her that she was appreciated and that this was a small gesture and that she was taking care of a most important person in my life at the time, she accepted and we concluded our lovely parent-to-teacher exchange. Omar and I made our way out the door and down the brick stairs and into the empty parking lot to make our way home. We approached my clean and tidy black SUV and I lifted him into his familiar child car seat as we always did. We started driving along and I noticed that he seemed quieter than usual. I looked through my rearview mirror and I could see that he had a strange look on his face. He looked confused. You okay, man? I asked with probing concern. Um, yeah, he offered. It's as if he wasn't quite certain he was answering correctly. Are you sure? I asked again, feeling certain that there was something he was struggling with. My young son paused and tilted his head as if he was stretching his neck and barked his confusion. Dad, I don't understand, he puffed with childhood directness. Now I became curious and unclear as well. What is it, buddy? What's on your mind? I asked with fatherhood sincerity. Dad, you gave my teacher your pen. That was your favorite pen. I don't understand. My son offered rhetorically, as if he was asking and telling at the same time. He continued as if to be certain I understood that he didn't understand. I wouldn't give away my favorite toy. Why'd you give away your favorite pen? He was searching uniquely, almost desperately for clarity. I smiled and then chuckled a little and tried to explain what seemed like crazy behavior to my five-year-old growing person. Well, son, you see, when people do nice things for you in life, sometimes you do nice things back to them. Your teacher was really nice to us, and she's really nice to you and your class. I appreciate that because I want you to do good in school. She's helping us, and I'm glad. The car took on a unique feel as if it were a classroom as well, different but similar to the brick and mortar ones we had just left. You're right. I like that pen a lot, I continued, but I love you more. And I wanted your teacher to know that our family is serious about helping you to be a good student. 
I was now tilting my head and stretching my neck like he was earlier to make sure we made intermittent eye contact through the small mirror. You see, son, for me, when someone looks out for me or shares something good about themselves with me, I notice. Then, if I can, I like to share a good part of myself with them. I like to do something that's special, that kind of means something really good. If I just gave her something I don't care about, then it would not mean as much to me. Now, I feel good that she feels good. I can always get another pen, but it's not always easy to make a friend or show someone appreciation. You understand? I punctuated. My son shook his head, then stared out the window as if he was looking for his clarity through his own eyes. But we ended there. I remember this story. And I share this story because it speaks to the continuing ev evolution I've experienced as a man. To look for the good, to find common ground, to avoid conflict, and when I experience conflict, to handle it with tact and diplomacy, is to stay on that consistent path to find my superior self. Thank you for joining us again today for another episode of Round 12. May you live as long as you want and never want as long as you live. May the worst days of your future be like the best days of your past. And may you continue to answer life's bell every time. Until we meet again, time! <laughs>